in moving forward and, and really pushing this in a more global setting for as many people as possible, there's this macro trend with what is going on with the American century and what is going on with dollarization and how does the rest of the world fit into that and what the next steps are that I think are the most compelling argument for how Honestly, Bitcoin can reach the millions of dollars per Bitcoin value that some of its proponents think it will. Welcome back to The Breakdown with me, NLW. It's a daily podcast on macro, Bitcoin, and the big picture power shifts remaking our world. The Breakdown is sponsored by Crypto.com and Nexo.io and produced and distributed by Coindesk. What's going on, guys? It is Saturday, November 7th, and usually on Saturday, we do the weekly recap. However, as I've mentioned a couple times, I'm actually traveling this Saturday, so instead I'm doing this interview, and it's one I'm really excited about. Between 2004 and 2008, I lived on and off in Cairo, Egypt, about six or seven times. I thought I was going to spend my life in the Middle East, and obviously things went very differently, but it's still a place that I care about deeply and am fascinated by. And so as part of this sort of global coverage, maybe shifting focus away from America after such a long election season, I wanted to talk to someone who was in the Bitcoin and crypto space, but who had roots in Egypt and who could maybe bring together those threads. Enter Hani Rashwan. Hani is the CEO and founder of Amun and 21 Shares. He has founded numerous fintech companies before this, all at the ripe old age of 30, and he's a super thoughtful, smart guy, as you'll see from this conversation. In it, we talk about how Hanny was both introduced to Bitcoin and where it really clicked in, and you won't be surprised to find that it was at a moment of currency devaluation of the Egyptian pound. So with that, let's dive right into this great conversation with Hanny Rushwan. All right, Hanny, welcome to the show. So great to have you on The Breakdown. Thank you for having me. So I'm really excited for this conversation. People who are regular listeners to the show know that I uh, lived on and off in Egypt for some time, a uh, long time ago now, and uh, have always been super fascinated by it. And, uh, and you know, your work, your career has taken you to lots of places far beyond Egypt. But I thought it'd be really fun to talk about both what you've been doing in crypto, as well as just get your take uh, as someone who's, uh, you know, from from Egypt and who's spent time thinking about the uh, economics in the place to, to get some background. So I, I think to start, though, let's talk about what you're doing now uh, with 21 shares. And then maybe we can go from there into how it came to be. But let's start with what 21 shares is and, and what you're up to. Sure. So um, I'm, I'm the founder and, and, and CEO of um, Amun and 21 shares. And the way we uh, describe it is that 21 shares is our highly regulated um, entity that is today the world's largest issuer of crypto exchange traded products. And we do more tokens uh, under the Amun brand, which is a uh, younger company. Under 21 shares, we brought the world's first uh, index, uh, uh, investable crypto index, and we listed it as a share, as a stock on the Swiss stock exchange. We have since followed up with, I think, over 35 products now. We have by far the largest um, product suite of, of listed crypto uh, instruments so that you can invest in crypto like you would buy a share or a stock of a company. Um, and through our uh, listings, you can invest in Bitcoin, Ethereum, Bitcoin Cash, 
uh, Tezos, Binance, um, Ripple, uh, as well as four baskets or indexes uh, that give you a broader overview of the market, as well as a Bitcoin short ETP if you want to hedge or go the other way in USD, Euro, Swiss francs, as well as pounds. And today we're listed on uh, the Swiss Stock Exchange, the Austrian Stock Exchange, Deutsche Börse, uh, the German Stock Exchange, and a handful of small ones. And we're working on a bunch of new listings. Awesome. And so uh, for people who aren't familiar, what's the difference between an exchange-traded product and, uh, and an exchange-traded fund uh, like we have in the US? Yeah, so we've, we've heard a lot about the... The ETF sagas, right, around the world. Um, we are working on, on a bunch of new listings and a bunch of new geographies. So we may or may not be actually intimately familiar with some of these discussions. Um, so an exchange-traded product, and it's, it's, it's actually a bit, it's a bit complicated because for some reason, the Swiss regulators call uh, an exchange-traded commodity an exchange-traded product. So that is actually a feature just in Switzerland, where an ETP is actually an ETC elsewhere. An exchange-traded commodity is um, 100% collateralized. Um, it is not a debt instrument like like uh, ETNs out there. And so it's a fairly more conservative structure than ETFs and ETNs. And it was initially designed to um, trade gold and silver and other uh, precious metals and commodities. That's actually how it came about. Uh, these kinds of uh, products first got listed as ETCs and then later got listed as ETFs. So the, the world's first gold ETF happened, I believe, a year after the world's first gold ETC. Um, we think that given the crypto asset class and especially our, our customers are mostly either uh, retail users who want to put this in you know, their retirement accounts or have an easier access to it or institutional investors and private banks and family offices who are not able to invest in this in any other form and are pretty worried about it, we give them an easier access to that. And so we thought we would go with the most conservative structure there is. And today, as it exists from a regulatory perspective, that is an ETC, which again, in Switzerland, we call an ETF. This episode is brought to you by Crypto.com, the crypto super app that lets you buy, earn, and spend crypto all in one place and earn up to 8.5% per year on your Bitcoin. Download the Crypto.com app now to see the interest rates you could be earning on BTC and more than 20 other coins. Once in the app, you can apply for the Crypto.com metal card, which pays you up to 8% cash back instantly on all purchases. Reserve yours in the Crypto.com app today. Looking for the best way to stay on top of your investment game? Nexo.io has you covered in three easy steps with their high-yield savings account for digital assets. Step one, create an account at Nexo.io. Step two, transfer assets to your secure Nexo wallet with no minimum or maximum limits on funds deposited. Step three, sit back, relax, and earn up to 10% compounding interest paid out daily on your crypto and fiat. Your passive income made simple. Get started at Nexo.io. So let's talk about how, how you got into crypto. I know you've been doing uh you've been you've been building tech startups for a very long time despite your young age and have been in the fintech payment space social space but how did the how did crypto get on your horizon and how did you kind of get from uh from you know going to school and and starting to hack around computers to where you are now sure 
Um, so I, I've been doing fintech startups for, for about 10 years now. Uh, and I did, this would be my third uh, startup. Um, the first one failed uh, epically. Uh, I, we, we built buy buttons and inserted them inside of tweets and Facebook posts and YouTube videos. You, you'd get a little modal out and you'd be able to make a transaction and pay with a credit card right then and there. So that was the, I think, first social commerce. Uh, and that did not do well. Uh, the second company was a, a payouts and a disbursements API that a lot of the online lenders like Lending Club and Prosper and LendUp, et cetera, uh, in the United States used. And that was successful and we sold that one. And then now, now we're working on crypto. Um, so I did all of this starting in 2011, uh, end of 2011. Uh, and I, my lead investor at the time was this guy called Tim Draper of uh, Draper Fisher Jurvetson, which is a top VC firm in Silicon Valley. And, and Tim had been personally involved with the startup from the very, very beginning. Um, he's actually invested in, in both companies. Um, and those in the crypto space may know Tim because he's a bit of a Bitcoin bull and one of the earliest people to really get into the space. Um, he's also one of those libertarians that wants to, uh, I think his grand idea was we should break California up into six different states. And we got a little bit famous there as well. And basically starting in 2012, I would have these periodic meetings with him um, to do uh, you know, investment updates and, and, and stuff like that. And he would ask me, uh, when, this is in 2012, right? So in one year when everyone in the world only accepts Bitcoin for payment, what is your plan? And that's where he was. So I actually got introduced to Bitcoin super, super early on. Uh, I remember there were other companies within his portfolio that were at the, uh, at the time it would have been, let's say 2013, 2014, really started getting involved more in Bitcoin. Um, he's one of the earliest investors in Coinbase. Um, and these were all like pretty early uh, innovations. And um, at one point, uh, you know, I remember someone gifted me on a flash drive uh, three bitcoins, and they were they were worth at the time fifteen dollars each. I about fifteen dollars because I got fifty dollars worth of bitcoin from someone, um, and I've since lost that flash drive because it wasn't that important. But despite having been introduced to it super early, I dismissed it at the beginning because I thought that this is going to be very interesting for the black market and failed states what we think of today as a Venezuela or Somalia or North Korea kind of situation. This is actually interesting for the people there. And it's interesting for criminals overall. That was my first thought. And I kept, I kept this thought for, for many, many years and I dismissed it. I didn't really do much with it. I played around with it from, from trading. And I think from the, there was a point where it went from 200, 300 to, 1100 and then back i made some some trades and some money there but that was it uh wasn't really that interested in it i thought at best it could become an index of the black market as a concept and i thought that was fascinating but i really didn't want to be personally involved in that um and then uh i was selling the second company so we're in the middle of the m a process and i was a bit bored there were just lawyers going around and at around the same time i think this was the end of 2016 um, I'm Egyptian and I was I, I, born and raised in Egypt, educated in America. 
in my native country, in Egypt, the pound was devalued at the end of 2016. And this is like throughout, you know, decades of uh, government, social, economic uh, ineptitude. Uh, we've gotten to this stage now where uh, the currency has been devalued so much, uh, we need to do a flotation. And overnight, everyone lost 50% of their net worth, right? Because it was devalued by half. And that was a crazy thing to, to, to witness. Um, inflation that year reached 35%. So people actually in, in Egypt, 2016 was a very, very tough year. Um, and, and this isn't a, like most people don't, don't really think about this or realize this, but like, this isn't, you had a bad year because taxes were raised. It, it's your net worth, like everything you have collected and saved in your 20, 30, 40, 50 years of working is now half what it used to be worth um, or more because of, of inflation. So it's, it's a crazy, crazy thing, which is why a lot of people in a lot of areas of the world buy things like gold because it's, it's meant to safeguard values and, um, you know, et cetera. And during this, I remember seeing a lot of news reports of middle class and upper middle class Egyptians, doctors, lawyers, engineers, the like, um, getting arrested for trying to buy Bitcoins on like local Bitcoins and, and things like that, like more, um, uh, more of those kinds of purchases than centralized exchanges, which didn't really, um, weren't re readily available to Egyptians at the time, like fiat on-ramps weren't a thing. And that was for me, the light bulb moment. Like it was then that I realized, huh, they're safeguarding their assets. This is significantly better than gold. We're a gold-loving country. This this is actually a lot better in, in many ways. And I get this. And if if this applies to a country like Egypt, then my model of like this is uh, an index of the black market and something for Somalia and Venezuela is no longer true. Because Egypt, despite our troubles, is actually a pretty important and big place. We're the 21st largest economy in the world by PPP. It's not an insignificant place. If it applies to Egypt, then all of a sudden, well, it could apply to Turkey and Russia and India, Saudi Arabia, Brazil. Um, and that becomes a much bigger addressable market. And if it starts applying to places like Russia and, and Malaysia and Brazil, then, well, the UK and America and Spain and Italy are not really that far off. And um, like I said, I was selling the, the, uh, the other company. I tried to get my family to make like a meaningful investment in Bitcoin, just like as a startup investment um, at this time, because I thought it would be a significant uh, investment for the next 10 years. And let's just say it was sufficiently difficult enough for my family to try and make that investment that literally that's why we started 21 shares in the moon. Interesting. So uh, I love, I mean, I, I love hearing these backstories because they so often start with light bulb moment into uh, some difficulty in acquisition or use or interaction with the asset turns into, uh, you know, a new startup, right? Um, so this is really fascinating. I, and I think that I, I, one of the points that I, I want to hang on for a second is the this this notion of where it can happen. Because the the 
this currency devaluation story is so uh, omnipresent. It's happened so many different places, so many different times, and it's just a fact of kind of the 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 last you know fifty. I mean, it's a it's a fact of monetary history, you know, and certainly recent monetary history. And to your point. Uh, this is not just sort of the the you know some backwater country. This is a place that millions and millions of people visit every year. That has a thriving economy. That's one of the most important economies in the region. That has a huge, young, dynamic population. That has a growing tech scene. Right? The, you know, it's it's the that's the that's the profile. But it it just is a fact of life. And I think that's certainly for me one of the biggest reasons that I came to get uh get get really deep on Bitcoin. I I was first introduced to it probably around the same time as you uh, in a similar place, actually. I was advising a company going through Y Combinator, the same class as Coinbase, and they gave out uh, a, a thumb drive that had one Bitcoin on it, I think, to everyone or whatever. Maybe they 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 set people up with a, the first Coinbase wallet or whatever it was, you know. But um, but at that time, you know, it was really presented as it was like a competitor to Square, which is ironic now given Cash App's relationship to Bitcoin, but it was just a payments technology. And it wasn't actually until I left Silicon Valley a few years later and started to kind of like think about the world in in, in different terms again and revisit some of the earlier stuff that I had done in my life that was more focused on kind of uh, global relationships between different countries that this particular kind of vision of a use case made sense to me. So I, I think it's just fascinating that that was a, the light bulb moment for you. Um, I guess what, what, what I'm interested in too is, you know, so you are building startups, uh, you know, in the early aughts, right in Silicon Valley, um, as right as Egypt is going through one of the most significant political changes. I mean, the most significant political change in two generations, right? Um, what was what was that like? Kind of seeing the awakening of Egypt in in 2011. How did it change? If it if it did, you're thinking around, uh, you know, what what the future might hold for Egypt or what you wanted to build. Interesting. So the, I mean, we've had a very long and difficult uh, last ten years as a country. Um, I think we've had in the last ten years we've had three presidents, and I believe three different constitutions. Um, positives and negatives, right? Um, I, I was in college um, at, the, at the beginning of the, of the revolution in 2011, and uh, it was a very nice, very euphoric moment. Uh, I think it was quite exciting. A lot of people, I remember, I, I was actually, um, it was in the middle of exam week, and I, and I left uh, school and flew to Egypt to uh, see what is going on with the revolution because that, like that's how historic it was, and um, all of my professors except except one, <laughs> I had one hard ass who was like, "No, I'm going to fail you. Um, you need to drop the class." We're like, "Okay, done." Um, but every other person was like, "Go, go, go. We'll deal with this later." Um, ironically, the the uh, the one hard ass was a history of Islam course, which you'd think I, I should. <laughs> <laughs> Pass with ease. Hilarious. But anyways, it was a very euphoric time. And uh, it, it was, in retrospect, a real lesson for all of us in like the devils and the details. Um, there's a lot of really bright ideas. Uh, I think execution is everything. Um, and that was a, diff a very, very difficult next few years. 
Um, something that actually I think would be fairly interesting to an American market is um, at the time, like we were so excited about social networks, Facebook and Twitter. Like I, I think that um, in 2011, there were like three or four uh, babies that were born in Egypt that were named Facebook. Like there was a famous one where like there's this guy that named his daughter Facebook. So there's an actual Egyptian girl who I, I'm sure she changed her name by now, but like at in 2011 was called Facebook um, because that's how social networks, especially Facebook and Twitter, were a very big part of like organizing the crowds and organizing information, et cetera. And uh, people were really, really excited about that. And of course, some of these companies were uh, going public around the same time or, you know, had just been recently public. And so they were using that as well. And they're like, look at what we do. We spread freedom. And now that, you know, <laughs> now we have, we have calls to, you know, shut down social networks and the amount of misinformation and the, and the malicious harm, et cetera, there, I think also mirrors expectations, reality, devil in the details, and um, all, all of these all of these other things that, that I think um, have come up. So I think that is single-handedly the largest uh, lesson that, that we learned in the last 10 years. There's so much opportunity. Euphoria is fantastic. But euphoria does not last more than a specific amount of time. And um, execution is everything, and it's it's pretty damn difficult to, to execute. Yeah, I mean, these moments of radical change and upheaval lead to, uh, I mean, incredibly difficult periods of open, you know, uh, big changes in power, right? Big changes in power are never easy. They're never clean. Uh, and so I, I think that you're right. And I think change in general is like almost never clean. It's something that I've also learned. Yeah, and, the, and it's interesting, too, that you mirror the uh, sort of um, – uh, loss of innocence almost with our expectations around these social media tools, because this was at a time when, I mean, in some ways, I wouldn't be surprised if many of the uh, agents that use social networks as tools of disinformation, their uh, their education was watching these sort of extremely legitimate, spontaneous citizen uh, protest movements like what happened in Egypt in 2011 as models for how powerful these networks could be, you know? Exactly. So uh, I guess, you know, we don't have that much uh, time. I mean, I, I, I could indulgently talk about uh, about both Egypt and Bitcoin for, for hours, but um, I, I guess I want to see how, you know, so you had this revelatory moment around the potential for, uh, for sort of a non-sovereign currency, right, in, in 2016 or in around that area as the Egyptian pound was being devalued. Um, what have attitudes towards Bitcoin, towards crypto been like in Egypt? What were they like then? How have you seen Seen them change, uh, you know. What are things now? And again, I know that you sort of uh, have a pretty pretty global purview now, but I'm sure that you still are in, in touch with uh, with the, the the home community as well. Look, we're 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 an important place in the region, but we are as a country swayed obviously by by these global macro trends. So um, that is what that is what moves us. I mean, we're not a global power, so it's it's all about what is going on outside and how how will that blow the wind that's coming our direction, um, which to be very fair, I think is the majority of the world. Like it's probably true that, you know, 6 billion people that this is actually how, how the world, uh, is, I don't think it is possible to talk about crypto, Bitcoin, etc., without really speaking about what is going on with the American century. 
um, from like a very global macro trend. What is going on with dollarization in general? Um, I live in Europe now. Europeans have a really difficult time understanding uh, how the United States today is able to control the global financial system. Um, we see it with sanctions a, a little bit when like European interests and American interests don't align, even though they're close allies on most things. Uh, the fact that America has so much control over the global financial system is a problem for everyone outside of America and about half the people inside America. Um, and that is something that is going to be this, this trend moving forward. And so when you think about it uh, through the lens of a country like Egypt, we don't know what happens with the dollar. Does it stay? Does it leave? A lot of people will oftentimes want to hold their assets in a currency that they, um, let's say, are less worried about, right? Uh, a lot of cases, that's the dollar, but that's now moving more towards the euro. There's a lot of gold buying and holding. Um, and I think that trend continues. The real question, and I think this is where like you, you brought up sort of non-sovereign currencies. I think this is, this is where something interesting might happen is if the dollar is coming to an end, I don't know, in the, in the next generation, um, what replaces it? Because being in Africa, there are clearly some very big issues with like Chinese debt and Chinese investment. I don't think a lot of the world is too keen on, on picking up the Chinese currency um, as the world reserve. Um, Russia's not powerful enough to push this forward. So, you know, they might may have some stuff with the rubles in Central Asia, but it won't move beyond that. Europe's a little too disorganized uh, to really do much interesting things with the euros. And there are all these clear problems with the dollar for the rest of the world. And, and like I said, for a lot of Americans as well, that might be the void where, huh, something that is non-sovereign, something that is sort of Swiss-like, but not because even the Swiss can be intimidated and pushed and manipulated by other powers, something that cannot do that might be something that we can all either agree on or sort of just move towards and then it becomes an inevitability. And that's, that's sort of how I think about the true impact of, of Bitcoin or crypto on a country like Egypt. Um, people are excited about it. People are very, very excited about gold and being able to be in control of their own destiny. Uh, and it has these attributes that make it superior to that. But in moving forward and, and really pushing this in a more global setting for as many people as possible, then there's this macro trend with what is going on with the American century and what is going on with dollarization and how does the rest of the world fit into that and what the next steps are that I think are the most compelling argument for how Honestly, Bitcoin can reach the millions of dollars per Bitcoin value that some of the, its proponents think it will. Well, that is a, a juicy spot, I think, to uh, to maybe pause this conversation. We'll we'll have to have another one soon. But um, I appreciate your time. This is a super fascinating conversation, and uh, yeah, it's just a, a really interesting stuff. And uh, best of luck with everything with Twenty One Shares. We'll definitely be watching from afar. Thank you, thank you. This was fun. Cheers. I want to pick up the thread where we left around how a non-sovereign currency could actually become the global reserve currency. And I think something that we don't appreciate is that it's not going to be a 
meeting like a Bretton Woods where people all agree on some new reserve currency. You might see central bankers try something like that. Certainly, we've seen Mark Carney, the former governor of the Bank of England, propose his synthetic hegemonic currency, which is basically central bankers' version of Libra. But I don't think that that's how it will happen to the extent that it does. I think that it will be numerous accumulative individual private market decisions that slowly shift things over time. If you start to see people and companies settle things in Bitcoin or some other currency that isn't the US dollar, that isn't the Chinese yuan, that isn't the euro, that's how it will happen. It will be the slow accumulation of transactions over time until it just becomes normative. And it won't be all at once, right? There could be a period where there's four global reserve currencies happening simultaneously, and it's regional, it's balkanized. In fact, I think that's the most likely scenario, given the way that we're seeing the world shift in the next sort of post-American decades to come. I think it's important to note this because we sometimes discuss reserve currencies as though, again, overnight you flip a switch and it goes from one to another, but that's not how markets work. That's not how economies work. And as we think about the role for Bitcoin or a non-sovereign currency in that environment, it's going to be the decisions of the decentralized network of private companies that will make that change or not. Anyways, guys, I appreciate you listening. I hope you enjoyed that interview. And until tomorrow, be safe and take care of each other. Peace.